Good morning, Grace family. It's a pleasure to be with you and those of you visiting. My name is Junior Jamrionvit, and uh, it's my turn to preach this morning. So uh, let us pray. Father God, thank you for who you are, another day of life. Uh, may your word, more than anything, go forth and do its mighty work, change people's lives. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> You know, in 2016, there was this movie that came out called Arrival, and it's a, a movie about aliens coming to Earth. But it's atypical from your normal alien movie that these aliens come and invade and try to conquer the world, and, and we have to fight them back. It's not that type of movie at all. Uh, so, but it does raise the typical questions of, hey, why are they here? Where do they come from? What do they want? Are their intentions hostile or not? Amy Fisher is the main protagonist of this movie, and she's a linguist, and she leads these teams of investigators to try to communicate and find, uh, with these aliens to find out the answer to those questions. And as she boards the ship, we quickly find out that these aliens are nothing like us at all. Nothing. Not in the way they communicate, not they look, their anatomy, the atmosphere is different, even how gravity works for them is completely different. They're completely other than what we are. Hence the challenge to be able to communicate intelligibly and find out what, what they're doing here and what they want. Now you take that idea of being completely different than us. There were Old Testament saints that felt the same way about God. Now take Job for instance. During his time when he was suffering and, and losing his family and his wealth, one of his friends tried to comfort him and saying, hey, God will not reject the blameless he will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. Now, Job didn't deny the fact that God will not forsake the blameless. He was, however, very skeptical that he could plead his case that he was blameless. And he says this. He said, he, God, is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to mediate between us and someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. See, that's the beauty of the new covenant. That's the beauty of the birth of Christ, the incarnation, God putting on flesh and becoming a man. In our primary passage today, we're going to see that Jesus became truly human and that he is more like us what we may realize. And when he became human, he didn't cease to become God. And Jesus is fully human in every way that we are except one. And we'll get, that, uh, get to that as we move forward in the study. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And we'll start here at about verse, we'll start verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of the servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I want to focus our attention on verse 
7, where it says he emptied himself or made himself of nothing or made himself of no reputation, depending on your translation. Now, the word empty has caused many great debate, and it's basically trying to answer the question, well, what did Jesus empty himself of? I mean, he must have emptied himself of something. Now, this word empty is used four times in the New Testament, and Paul uses it every time. And every time he uses it, he's using it figuratively, not literally, of something emptying himself of some quality that it possesses, like us emptying a cup of water uh, by pouring it out. He's using it figuratively. So it's more about nullifying something than losing something. And this word is used metaphorical, so then Christ didn't empty, of himself, empty himself of any divine attributes. Instead, metaphorically speaking, he put on this, this form, this veiled uh, appearance of God by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. So he did not give up any qualities prior to the incarnation. And this word servant in the same verse is this Greek word doulos, which means slave. So Jesus not only became a human, but he also became a slave. And in Greco-Roman society, a slave was deprived of the most basic of human rights. And Jesus put himself in that position. But Jesus wasn't a slave to society or did he have a human master. No, he was a slave to God the Father and he submitted under his will by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And here this phrase, likeness of men, does not mean there's a difference between Christ's humanity and ours because we often use the word like to describe something different but similar. Right? It's not like that at all. If anything, they're synonyms for form and image. So basically, what humanity is, Jesus is that exact image. So now, here's the direction we're going to go today. Here's a quick outline. Not the 20-point sermon Eric did last week. I'm still cutting my teeth as a preacher, so I don't know if I'll be able to get to that level quite yet. But basically, two uh, points is the immaterial and the material, and then we'll go over what, what that means and how we could apply it to our lives. So the immaterial, Jesus' mind, will, and heart, and then the material that Jesus actually has a human body, the physical aspects of it. Okay, so the first part, Jesus has a human mind. Look at these passages. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in statue and in favor with God and man. In Mark 13, he says, but concerning that day or that hour, speaking of his second coming, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, these verses at first glance may seem troubling to you because it does raise the question, hey, if Jesus is truly God and God knows everything, how could Jesus be limited? How can he increase in wisdom? And how can he not even know his own return? I think those are normal questions to ask, and there's answers to that. In addition to him being fully divine, he was also fully human. Now, these two natures are distinct yet united in one person, and Fred Sanders is going to go over that more detail next week. But for now, know that Jesus has both an infinite divine mind and a finite human mind. So he could be said to not know certain things like Mark suggested because the human mind isn't all-knowing. So in Jesus' humanity, he can increase in wisdom. And he had to go through a learning process, much like children do, to be able to navigate through the world. But in John 
21.17, when Jesus was talking to Peter, he says this to Peter. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said this to him a third time. Do you love me? And, he, and Peter said back to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So then how is it possible that Jesus knows everything, at least in Peter's mind, and not know his own return? Well, this goes back to our passage in Philippians chapter 2, where Christ emptied himself and became a slave by denying his own rights to divinity. Now, analogies aren't perfect. I'm going to uh, give one to try to explain this paradoxical idea. So when Jesus became a man and put on flesh, he entered into this dark room where he was limited in his knowledge. But because of his divine nature, he could have turned on the switch and have access to knowledge at any point of his life. But he stayed in the dark out of obedience to the Father. So he may have access to the knowledge, but he, was being, but he humbled himself. Second, Jesus has a human will. Now, Jesus and the Father are one, so there's one divine will. But Jesus is also a man with a distinct will from the Father. So we have to affirm two wills in Christ because Scripture does. And here's a couple passages. First in John, where it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of one who sent me. And in Gethsemane, when Jesus was praying... It says, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In Hebrews, he talks about, the author talks about that although Christ was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Again, this is an example of Jesus putting on flesh, being in the dark, and submitting under the will of the Father, and he had to deny his human will at key points of his earthly life and ministry. Finally, Jesus has a human heart, or emotions, if you will. And throughout the gospel, Jesus displayed human emotions. In Matthew 8, when the centurion came to him and begged him to heal his servant, Jesus was willing and was going to go to his house, but the centurion said, hey, no, I'm not even worthy to have you come to my house. Just say the word, and I know my servant will be healed. And Jesus marveled at the man's faith. In John 11, the account of when Lazarus died, when, fi- when Jesus finally arrived to town, Mary fell at his feet and weeping, and those accompanying her also fell weeping. And this text says he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And eventually he too wept. So he felt the same grief that we do when we lose somebody close to us. Again, back to Gethsemane, uh, the prospect of going to the cross made his soul very sorrowful even unto death. And Hebrews says Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, Hebrews 5, 7. John chapter 2, Jesus experienced anger and cleanses the temple of money changers, saying, stop making my father's house a place of business. You know, if you back up one verse... It actually says he was making a whip of cords and he drove them all out of the temple. Imagine that. He made a whip of cords. I mean, he didn't find one lying around. He didn't go to a corner store and get one. He made it himself. Do you know the process 
uh, it takes to make a whip of cords? Well, first, you have to select the rope, then you measure the rope, you fold it into these long loops, you tether the cord, you tether the base, you build the handle, you shape the handle, and finally, you trim the lashes. It's a very involved process. Imagine how methodical and premeditated Jesus was at this moment. He was angry not because of volatility or based out of insensitivity, but as righteous and calculated. I mean, how many Sunday school lessons do we get of Jesus fashioning a weapon? Right? I imagine him walking in the courtyard and seeing what was going on like, oh, no, you don't. Oh, no, you don't. Grab, he's making his tool. Man, I'm about to open a can of godly jealousy on everybody right here. Agree. He, he felt emotions. He was passionate about it. In short, Jesus, throughout his earthly life, felt emotions. He was overjoyed when people came to faith. He had compassion on the poor. He was angry when they were exploited. He felt anguish in the garden. He mourned over the lost of loved ones and the full gamut of human emotions. Jesus felt them. And John Calvin sums it up. Christ put on our feelings along with our flesh. So Jesus has a human mind, a human will, and human emotions. Transitioning to the material, Jesus also has a human body. In Colossians 1.22, it says he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So see, he didn't have a fake body or it wasn't an illusion. It wasn't some phantom. He had a real body and he had a real human birth. Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, Jesus sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus also grew like a child, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Luke chapter 2. It's amazing to think that Jesus had to go through the learning process of how to walk, how to eat on his own, how to develop fine motor skills just like every other human being. He experienced physical limitations. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was weary from journeys. He had to sleep, and he died a human death. And he was also perceived by others as a man. And here, Matthew 13 says, and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is, this, is, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and not all his sisters are with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and his own household. So people believed Jesus was a man. That actually was never in question. They took offense at him because they knew the Messiah couldn't be a mere man. That the Son of God couldn't be a mere man. They knew his family. They knew his father. They knew his mother. They knew his siblings. I think it's safe to infer that most of Jesus' life was pretty ordinary. I mean, growing up, uh, he wasn't this young Jedi in training, levitating rocks and wielding a lightsaber and people saying, oh, man, he's going to be something when he grows up. <laughs> no, when he finally claimed to be the Messiah, his own brothers didn't even believe in him. John 7, 5. 
Imagine that. It's like, oh, man, we were in bunk beds together. Now you're claiming to be the Messiah. What? <laughs> Crazy. So thinking about his humanity, there is one critical distinction that we must make and that there is a difference in that Christ never sinned. He never sinned. And Peter said he committed no sin, 1 Peter 2.22. The author of Hebrews says Jesus is without sin, Hebrews 4.15. So don't be confused with the idea that when Jesus took on flesh, that his flesh was also corrupted by the fall and that he somehow took on sinfulness. Now, Jesus did feel the effects of the fall in the sense that he could suffer and experience pain and death, but he did that without ever experiencing or touching sin. Now, how exactly is that possible? How exactly is it possible that Jesus took on flesh and not sinfulness? You know, when we gathered as a team to go through the Advent series, uh, this question actually came up. And then all of us started slowly turning to Fred Sanders. <laughs> so like, hey, does, does, Fred, does Fred have an answer to this? And then Fred looked at all of us and said, I don't know. That's why his birth is called miraculous. And I was like, man, that's good enough for me, man. Fred, you just saved me a ton of hours of study. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's not like I'm going to find something Fred hasn't, right? Good grief. So I'll take that. I'll take it. Uh, now, to be clear, there are theories out there, but I don't really want to fall down that rabbit hole this morning. Okay? Just go with what Fred says. More importantly, the theological implication of Jesus living a perfect, obedient, sinless life and completely submitting under the will of the Father by humbling himself, he is now able to be that substitutionary sacrifice for us. And Kenny already quoted this passage, I'll do it again, for, for if because of one man's trespass, Adam's, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So Adam the man, our representative, failed. Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. And Hebrews says this, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiations for the sins of the people. So by being sinless and a man, Jesus is able to be that perfect sacrifice to appease the wrath of God. I think C.S. Lewis summed it up nicely when he says the son of God became the son of man that the sons of men may become sons of God. And that's the gospel in a nutshell. The gospel is recognizing that we've sinned against the holy God and just punishment is eternal damnation. But because of Jesus, the son of God, being born of a virgin, living a sinless life, dying on the cross, resurrecting the third day, by placing our faith in him and his finished work, asking for the forgiveness of sins, we could receive the free gift of eternal life because the wrath of God is satisfied. So that's the humanity of Christ. Now, some ap applications here. What, what does that mean for us? I have three points um, hopefully you won't be uh, disappointed, my only three points. But Jesus, becoming fully human, gives us an example for living. Second, him becoming fully human shows that the human body is good. And finally, 
being fully human reveals the character of God to us. Okay, let's start with the first one. Jesus becoming fully human gives us an example for living. Now, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am imitators of Christ. So here are some ways we could imitate Christ. Luke 4.16 says this, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and it was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. It was his custom to do this. For the for us, under the new covenant, it's going to church. And as a Christian, man, going to church, talk about the bare minimum that we ought to be doing. Now, coming to church doesn't make you a Christian, but if you're a professing believer, you can't read the New Testament or understand the new covenant without recognizing our need to be part of the local body, part of the church. Our faith is meant to be lived out in community. I know most of us are Americans here, and we love our rugged individualism. But we could take that too far. There are several one another passages in the Old Testament. I'm just going to read to you a few. It says, love one another, serve one another, build up one another, admonish one another, care for one another, bear one another's burden, forgive one another. Be patient, speak the truth in love, bear with one another, show hospitality, stir up one another to love and good works. Teach, comfort one another, encourage, exhort, rebuke, pray, and be kind and compassionate to one another. Why? Because we're members of one another. And Jesus did all of this, and we can't do this in isolation. We need to be part of the local church. And the end of this verse, it also said that he stood up to read. He stood up to read. Yes, Jesus read the scriptures. He meditated on the scriptures. He used the scriptures to battle Satan while he was in the wilderness. So we too must read the scriptures, meditate on the scriptures, memorize the scriptures, love the scriptures. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Finally, Jesus prays. Jesus prays. In sum, There are 29 verses related to Jesus praying that contain the occasion, the location, and duration of his prayers. In short, Jesus prayed consistently and constantly, and if a sinless Christ needed to pray and constantly be in commune with the Father, how much more we? Second point, Jesus becoming fully human shows that the human body is good. And I think today, as Christians, we have these these Gnostic tendencies. In general, Gnosticism teaches that material creation is evil. And somehow we need to repudiate the physical world and transcend it somehow. And this can manifest in forms of piety where we focus on individuals living a holy Christian life to the neglect of the physical world, to the neglect of our physical bodies and a lack of cultural engagement. Piety, at least in one sense, says Christianity has to be lived out in the privacy of your own home and nowhere else. That's folly. The Bible acknowledges physical reality. For example, when there was a famine in the land, God told Elijah the prophet to go to another land and a widow is going to meet him and cook him a meal. God knew that Elijah needed food and provided it. When Timothy was feeling sick, Paul tells him, hey, maybe a little wine coating your stomach would help. See, the Bible talks about these physical components of our lives and acknowledges them, so it's unhelpful and even detrimental 
to our faith to deny physical reality. God created the human body. God created this earth, and it is good. So we can honor God in the way we use our bodies. And three sub-points here about our bodies, I'll just summarize it as rest, work, and play. Rest, work, and play. First, rest. Jesus needed to rest. One of my favorite scenes in the gospel is when the disciples were freaking out at the storm. And these are fishermen, right? Like, you know, this, this wasn't uh, something minor. They, they encounter this all the time. So this was serious. Oh, freaking out. And Jesus in the back just snoozing. <laughs> Jesus, wake up. We're going to die. You know, and he rebuked the wind. He was probably angry that they woke him up from his nap. That's why he rebuked the winds. You know what happens when you don't get enough rest or you don't get enough sleep? Well, you experience fatigue. You have blood sugar problems. You start craving carbs. A lack of sleep affects mood, cognitive functioning like concentration, focus, memory, and causes irritability. Why do you think you tell your child, hey, I think you need a nap? <laughs> so at night, maybe we ought to scale back on our scrolling through whatever device we have or whatever streaming service we use. When you're dead tired, what, what is it? I, I do it too. What is it that we fight sleep because I need to be entertained right now? We fight sleep. No, put it away. That episode will be there tomorrow. Go to sleep. Your body will thank you in the morning. Second, work. Jesus worked. He was a carpenter. This is similar to a, a modern day handyman where he had skills to build and repair things. Jesus had to grow in that skill to become a good carpenter. It probably took hours of study and practice to acquire the skills necessary to be successful in this field. He had to troubleshoot. He had to figure out how to fix things. He had to take measurements. He had to have the right tools and the right materials. He understands the day-to-day -day grind of getting up in the morning and going to work. Remember that most of Jesus' life was pretty ordinary. And that includes work, learning a, mar a marketable skill and getting good at it. So we get up and go to work and be joyful about it. Finally, my favorite, play. Play, yes. And by I mean play, I mean working your body. And we really need, uh, when we think of longevity, we need to look more at health span instead of lifespan. See, lifespan is just the number of years you live. Health span is the quality of life in which you live. Now, physical fitness improves the quality of life. We know that physical exercise improves our body, improves our strength, our cardiovascular system, our flexibility. So making yourself as strong as you possibly can, it's not about vanity, but it's about restoring functionality. We, when we restore functionality, we're better suited to serve the Lord, to protect our family, to have more energy to do the things of God. Beyond our body, did you know exercises actually optimizes cognitive functioning, like improved memory and boosting your mood? You know, there's a correlation between people who are physically or, or exercise regularly have better me mental health and lower, much lower rates of mental illness. And I know everybody is at a different place when it comes to physical fitness. We all have a different baseline. And even some of us have serious health issues and even disabilities, which makes it almost impossible to be active. But for the rest of us, exercise doesn't have to be strenuous or structured, even take a long time to benefit. But there is something about being willing to subject your body to duress that not only builds your body, but builds your mind. When you train yourself to push through suffering and discomfort, 
it translates into other parts of your life. So when you're in another uncomfortable situation, you're like, you know what? I got this. I got this. When you're struggling with depression and anxiety, hey, maybe go for a walk. Go outside. Go on a hike. Appreciate the beauty of God's creation. See, this impacts in how we handle sin. Another example, take pornography, for example. You know, there are neurons in your brain that produces a chemical called dopamine. Most of us are familiar with dopamine. And that chemical acts on the area of brain uh, which gives you the feeling of pleasure and satisfaction and motivation. And we're hardwired biologically to seek out these activities to bring us that pleasure. And the reason why something like pornography is so tempting is that you have this immediate spike of dopamine hit and you get that immediate gratification. But understand that your body produces dopamine naturally. So when you view pornography, there's this huge spike. But when it wears off, you actually dip below your baseline. And that's when depression, shame, embarrassment kicks in. There's physiological things that are happening. Other ways you could actually produce dopamine is, well, Exercising regularly, eating protein, reducing saturated fat consumption, getting enough sleep, meditation on the scriptures, getting some sunlight, listening to music, enjoy. hopefully it's worship. So see, when it comes to lust, God designed us to want to procreate. That's a God-given desire. But because of a fall, it could be expressed in wicked and sinful ways. So merely trying to suppress those desires, you're just setting yourself up for disappointment and failure. You could get short-term gains through sheer force of will. But for long-term gains, it's not about suppressing those desires, but redirecting them. And as a Christian, we need to acknowledge and affirm that sin is a heart issue. There will always be a heart issue. We need accountability, prayer. We need to be in the word. We need to be among God's people in corporate worship. That will never change. But how we use our bodies helps us combat sin, helps us in our sanctification. Finally, Jesus becoming fully human reveals the character of God. And in Hebrews it says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And we could be in awe forever marveling at Jesus' holiness and splendor and beauty, and he shows us the character of the Father, not in some abstract or distant way, but God's love towards us, personified in the person of Jesus Christ. God is not completely unlike us that we can't know him. We can know him, and Jesus has made that possible. And now we could marvel at his divinity, and rightly so. In his divinity, he was born of a virgin. Demons trembled at his presence and obeyed his commands. He fed thousands upon thousands of people on meager resources. He walked on water. He rebuked the winds. He healed paralytics, the blind, the lame, and resurrected the dead. But let us not forget what he accomplished in his humanity. That he was born, that he learned, that he grew. He resisted temptation from the devil. He resisted temptation from the people who tried to make him a political king. He called his disciples. He invested in their lives. He violated the Sabbath. He ministered to great multitudes. He pronounced judgment on the wicked, told his followers to love their enemies. He mourned, he laughed, he cried, he rejoiced, he comforted. 
He reached out to the unclean and downtrodden. He invited the outcast to a banquet. He loved and protected children. He served people's food and washed the disciples' feet. He prayed and he didn't neglect the gathering of God's people. He became angry and jealous for the glory of God where he fashioned a weapon. He called one of his best friends Satan. He wasn't utterly docile, nor was he completely out of control, but he was absolutely dangerous. And he challenged authorities, and he went willingly to a trial that he knew was rigged against him. And he was severely beaten. He felt every strike, every spit across his face, the thorns piercing his brow. And despite feeling all this physical pain, he had this unmatched resolve to continue onward to the cross because of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. He told the authorities without flinching to go ahead and execute him. And Jesus died the most humiliating death, and in so doing, Jesus reveals the nature of true humanity, true strength, and true purpose. And because he accomplished all these things in his humanity, God has highly exalted him and given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And through Christ's death and resurrection, God was able to display a power that was never before seen. For when the Father raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. He not only also resurrected him, but he resurrected us according to his mercy and his great love with which he's loved us. Even though we were dead in our trespasses, he's made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing greatness of his rich kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that faith was not even of your own. It was a gift of God so that no man may boast. And being seated with him, we have the best seat in the house for the greatest worship service of all time. When Jesus finally takes the scroll and opens this seal, because he was the lamb that was slain, and by his blood he ransomed the people for God from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and made them a kingdom and a priest for our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And as everybody gathered around the throne, the living creatures, the, the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every creature in heaven and on earth and all the creatures in the sea saying with everything in them, amen. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. And he triumphed over them in him. And yes, we stand triumphant, not only over the penalty of sin, but also the rule of sin. And that sin no longer rules over our mortal bodies. For when the desires of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life attempt to rear its ugly head in whatever form uh, that sin we might be struggling with, remember that we run the race 
to receive a prize, a prize that is not perishable but imperishable and eternal because eternity is written in our hearts. There is a purpose. There is a pursuit. There is an end goal, and we move towards it, towards the upward call of Christ so that we don't wander aimlessly beating at the wind, but we discipline our bodies and keep it under control by beating it into submission. And yet, the beauty of Christianity is that we could enjoy the things of this earth. We enjoy the physical world. When things are rightly ordered, we could build households. We could enjoy making children and raising them. We could discipline them with cheerfulness and joy. We could enjoy going to work. We could enjoy the delicacies of a good meal. We could enjoy personal accomplishments and achievements through Christ's strength. We can enjoy relationships by knowing others and being known by others. And when all these things we desire are placed in this proper God-glorifying context, we can enjoy them all the more fully because we have the peace of God and the blessing of God. So take heart. As Paul says, we are no longer our own, but we are purchased with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for Christ's humanity and all he's accomplished and that he is worthy. And may we worship him as such. In Jesus' name, amen.